Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. We have a few announcements for you today. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about another webinar that we've had. We did the one last time with David Nolan that was really well received. If any of you saw it, it's also available. Um, the recording is available online, so you can check that out. Um, but this one, the one I want to talk to you about, is coming up uh, Friday, September 12th, 2014. That's going to be at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, time, um, and the address there is go.cognitech.com slash transitwebinar. Uh, that's all one word. Um, and of course, it's talking about transit. Um, will be given by our very own Russ Olson. Uh, some of you may have seen him speak before, very entertaining speaker. Um, transit's super interesting. As you may know, we had a whole show on it. Um, it's a data format uh, that uh, Cognitech has released that solves... Um, an interesting set of problems. Um, anyway, you can check it out there. Um, that's go.cognitech.com slash transitwebinar. Sign up there. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that we have announced the ClojureCon speakers. Uh, you can find the whole list at closure-conj.org or it's on Lanyard if you look on Lanyard, which is lanyrd.com slash 2014 slash closure dash Cons, you can get more details, the whole speaker list. Um, looks pretty awesome, actually. The uh, There were a ton of submissions. It was, it was a fairly difficult choice for the people that were selecting speakers, I know. Um, there were quite a few submissions, and we only have so many slots. But uh, congratulations to the folks that did get accepted. I will be there with bells on, of course, um, checking out uh, those talks. And I hope to see you there, too. Um, of course, you can sign up for the conference uh, at closure-conj.org. That's in November. Um, and of course, while you're there signing up for the conj, you should also consider signing up for the Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop since it will be located right there near the conj and only the day before. So you can uh, travel once and get two conferences. Um, as you'll hear we on this episode, we have a lot more to say on this episode about the, the, the workshop. So, But you should definitely consider checking it out and... Uh, Get your tickets for the Conj and for the Scheme and Functional Programming Workshop as well. Uh, I think that's all for today as far as announcements go, so we will go ahead and go on to episode 63 of the Cognicast. Well, then let's go ahead and begin. All right, good afternoon. I guess it's afternoon for us, uh, everybody. It is Tuesday, September 2nd in 2014. Welcome to the Cognicast. And welcome especially to our guest, uh, Dr. William Bird. Welcome to the show, Will. Thanks, Craig. I'm glad to be here. Uh, yeah, well, we're glad to have you. And <laughs> before I forget, as I did in a recent episode, to ask this question, very important, uh, people have been listening to a song as the show began, uh, we always ask our guests to pick that song. What would you like us to play? 
Luminous Bipeds by the Orthotonics. Orthotonics. Awesome, awesome. So um, how would you characterize this music? Does it have a genre that you would pin on it? or, or... Uh, I guess it's early 80s art, jazz, punk, something okay. like that, that's from some... Richmond, Virginia. Oh, really? Cool. So kind of, I live in uh, Fairfax, Virginia, so that's kind of down my neck of the woods. Um, Richmond actually has a pretty crazy music scene for everyone to gather. I, there's a couple bands that I really like from that area. Well, you should definitely check out the Orthotonics. Well, I will be. I will definitely be checking them out as a result of, of this show. So, awesome, awesome. So, um, well, <laughs> you know, the I, I suspect people, many people in our audience, listening audience, know who you are. Um, but just in case they haven't seen one of your many very, very interesting presentations that have made their way into the closure world, I wonder if you would mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to everybody. Sure. Um, so I'm I'm Will. I been programming a long time since I was a kid and uh, say so I worked in industry at first I was a hobbyist you know I was a hobbyist programmer for probably 20 years and then at some point I decided to do it professionally so I went to, to school and got a degree in computer science from University of Maryland Baltimore County undergraduate degree and then I worked in industry for a number of years worked for some startups things like that and then I Decided to go back and get my PhD. I was always interested in programming languages. So I went to Indiana University and got my PhD in programming languages under Dan Friedman and graduated in 2009. And during that time, I was working on a logic programming language called Mini Canron that uh, Dan and Oleg Kislyov um, had been working on. And I, uh, I kind of, I guess I joined at the right time to get involved and in uh, the work that they were doing. And I've been working on that now for about oh, 11 years, 12 years, something like that. And and uh, shortly after I graduated, I got an email from David Nolan, who I think is almost universally known in the closure world. Mm-hmm. And he said that, hey, you know, I read your dissertation and I ported, <laughs> I ported Mini Cateron to... Uh, to closure and now it's a score logic library and it was like wow i didn't get you anything right (laughs) 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 so so that was that was just like an unexpected pleasure because you know we worked we did this work you know partly to to try to explain what logic programming was about and we wrote a book called the the reason schemer to explain this but it was also just our own research language right so I, i figured it's the sort of thing where, you know, maybe one or two people in the world would read my dissertation and, you know, it's just this little language that a few people at Indiana would use and that's about it. Uh, but as soon as he ported it to, to Clojure, then a lot of people started using it. And um, so then I decided, well, you know, it'd be fun to go to Clojure Conj because there was someone speaking about CoreLogic, and it was uh, Ambrose Bonaire Sargent, mm-hmm. who now just started as a PhD student at Indiana. Uh, oh, I don't think I knew that. Well, congr- <laughs> yeah, and congratulations to those guys. Yeah, uh, they're so lucky to have him. I'm so excited. So, uh, anyway, so I went out and I convinced Dan to come join me, and uh, we went to the conj and gave an impromptu talk in an unsession on on logic programming, and and then that. 
you know, one of the most important things that's happened to me career-wise is Stuart Holloway was in the audience when we demonstrated an interpreter running backwards on Mini Hanron, which means that you can, you know, normally with an interpreter, you can give it an expression like three plus four, and I'll give you the answer, which is seven. But if you write your interpreter in a pure logic style, you can say, well, the output seven, give me expressions that evaluate to seven, and then three plus four would be one of them. So we showed this off. And Stuart Holloway was in the audience, and Stu asked, can you use this to generate quines? Or, you know, quines are programs that evaluate to themselves. And it's a classic programmer puzzle to, to try to generate quines. Uh, and, and we thought, wow, that's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> so I basically stayed up all night in my hotel room trying to get it working. And the next morning, I had a very crude but working version. And then we spent the next, you know, year, year and a half trying to clean that up. And uh, so, so sort of everything since then has been trying to figure out better approximations to, you know, different ways to, to generate programs based on Stu's kind of throwaway question about clients. And it may be that, you know, I look back on it and my, my career is based on Stu's question at ClojureCon. So anyway, uh, that's been a lot of fun meeting folks at the con, just super friendly environment, and I just had a blast. And, and that also got, got me into meeting folks at Closure West and meeting Alex Miller and going to uh, Strange Loop and going to uh, Lambda Jam and, you know, just starting to get back into events that attract people from industries because, you know, I was in industry for a while and then I was in academia for a long time. And it's kind of striking that there aren't that – the, the connections between academia and industry aren't very strong. And because I've had my feet in both worlds, I would, I like to see anything that helps combine those. So um, Strange Loop is fantastic from that standpoint. Closure Conj is a lot of fun. I think we're seeing more and more people from academia uh, who are showing up and who are, who are being involved. So, uh, so this, these things are great. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I missed that original presentation that you did. I think was it at the first or the second closure con? It, it was at the second closure con. Um, and was there video of that one? I can't remember yeah, if that one got there, recorded. Yeah, there there is video of that. It's on uh, on minicanron.org. There's uh, in fact, let me see if I can. Uh, That's okay. We'll dig all the yeah. links up and sure, put them in the sure. show notes afterwards. No problem. Sounds good. Um, yeah, no, and it's it's uh, uh, so I haven't seen that one, but I've seen you know, several of the iterations that you and, and Dan have presented since then. And it's the really great talks for two reasons. One is when you kind of get, I mean, you did a very good job of explaining it, right? Generating programs that can, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about even when you get into the Quines one where it's like, find me all the programs that can generate themselves. But you guys walk through it. It's very, very interesting and totally, totally mind-blowing um, and, and really helped me actually understand what, people mean by um by logic or relational programming um but but on top of that <laughs> you guys well you personally and and, the, and certainly the combination of you and and dan have a great uh stage presence so definitely people should go check that check that out they're both educational and highly entertaining talks so hi, that, that's super cool um so and and of course now you mentioned um you know, trying to bring together uh, academia and uh, industry a bit more and you know, I've wanted to have you on the show for quite some time now, but I saw something recently. I'm like, okay, definitely the time to have to have Will on at least um, this time. We'll have you on again, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, 
it's the fact that um, you're part of the one of the you're helping to organize the scheme and functional programming workshop, which is coming up. We've actually announced it on the show a couple times, but um, I thought it would be great to talk about that some too, especially since it's co-located with Closure Conj coming up in November. It's the day before the Conj and in the same uh, location. So I, there's tons of stuff we could talk about, but if you wanted to talk about uh, the the workshop, that would be an awesome thing to touch on today. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So the scheme work, as a scheme and functional programming workshop is going to be held November 19th, and it's going to be in the the conference theater of the Grand Hyatt, uh, uh, Washington, and that's the official conference hotel for ClosureCon. So it's not the same venue, I think, because I think the venue is I, I think the ClosureCon is actually being held in the Warner Theater, I believe. Yeah, but yeah, it's but not it's at the a, hotel, yeah. Yeah, but it but uh, so the so the scheme workshop will be at the conf- uh, the conference theater in the. Grand Hyatt Washington Hotel, the conference hotel. And uh, I'm taking special pains to point this out because I didn't point this out as much as I should have last year. And so people went to the venue for the Kanj, which is in the Masonic Temple up on this hill that was kind of hard to get to. And the scheme workshop was held in the hotel. So (laughs) we had some people get lost, (laughs) uh, including some speakers and things like that. So, uh, so I just want to make sure people know it's it's in the, it's in the conference hotel. It's going to be November 19th and it's $20 for registration, but it's $15. If you're a closure conch attendee, we want to try to get as many attendees as, as possible. Um, We have a paper deadline coming up on September 5th. If anyone, has something that they think would be cool to show off. Um, these are short papers, usually six pages or so. Uh, and you know, we, we encourage submissions. My guess is most papers will be of an academic nature, but we're hoping to get to the point where we can get some, some closures of submitting papers on their work, maybe some joint uh, academic industry uh, submissions, that sort of thing. And the, the really the goal is to strengthen ties between the closure and the scheme communities. That's why we're co-locating it this year and why we co-located um, the, the workshop with ClosureConch last year. And I, I'm also happy to see that RacketCon is being co-located with Strange Loop, right? So that's another great example of sort of academia and industry um, meeting up. So anyway, I hope uh, closures will will want to attend the scheme workshop and be able to attend. Some of the talks are going to be, you know, fairly technical. Uh, we'll assume you know a fair bit of functional programming and maybe some programming language theory and so forth. Uh, hopefully, at least the ideas will be understandable. Some of the the talks will be easier to understand. And what what we did last year is we tried to uh, you know, try to push some of those easier to understand talks towards the afternoon because we knew more people would be arriving in the afternoon for closure conch the next day. Uh, so, so we might be able to pull that off again. I hope, hope we can. Uh, but, but the, probably the most important thing is just the interactions. That's what we saw last year is that, that uh, lots of closures and lots of schemers got to meet each other. And we had a number of schemers stay for the conj. I think we're going to have a significantly larger number this year. We had the keynote speaker, Alexei Radul, stayed for the conj. And he uh, is, is known for his work on propagator systems. In fact, there was a talk on propagator systems 
at the con, <laughs> you know, and Alexa uh, got to, to watch that. So that was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so, so I think basically more people we can get, uh, the better the, we'll just get to, to know each other. Probably the most important event is in that evening, which is, uh, let's see, it's Programming Enthusiasts Unite for Great Justice is the name for it. And that's at the Capital City Brewing Company. <laughs> Closures and, and skeevers get together sort of informally. And we had that last year. It was fantastic. Lots of people got to know each other. So so what I really see is, is probably the biggest benefit is going to be the interactions outside of, of the scheme workshop. Uh, now, sorry, is that is that uh, I'm just just going and trying to spell in my head. Does programming enthusiasts unite for great justice? I don't think that spells anything, but is that an event that's open to um, only people that attend the workshop, or is that you know? That, that's that's intended to be a workshop uniting uh, schemers and closures. So you know, anyone who's interested in closure or scheme or the conj uh, attendees, you know, should should go to that. Okay, so if I'm going to, the, I'm I'm actually going to really try hard to go to the workshop. I'm almost positive we'll make Great. it. Um, Great. But uh, but if I'm if I have already set my travel plans, I'm not coming in until you know like 5 p.m. that afternoon. I, I'm only yeah. going to the conch. I should still drop by the uh, Capital City Brewing Company and uh, and mix and mingle is what you're saying. That's exactly right, and and that's that's one of the reasons we have this event in the evening is because we know that not everyone will be able to arrive in a, a day early, um, but. Even if you arrive later in the evening, no excuse not to stop by and, and get to meet people who are who are equally as enthused about Lisp as as the closures. So, in fact, the scheme 40th anniversary is coming up next year. So, oh, really? uh, schemers have been doing this a long time, and they uh, schemers have a, a somewhat different perspective on Lisp than closures. And I think it's very healthy and very useful for closures and schemers to the kind of compare notes and try to understand, you know, the different design trade-offs and things like that and how they can be used in, in different ways. You know, so scheme has lots of history, but scheme also makes a very different set of design decisions. So I think, I think there's something to be learned, a lot to be learned, you know, from, from people, programmers on both sides. Let's dig into that a little bit, actually. I would love to, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, both the conference itself and the interaction because I think, as you say, there is a ton of value to be had in simply sitting down and saying, hey, what are you working on? And I, that can just go, that can turn into, easily turn into like super useful knowledge or even like getting a chance to work with people you might not otherwise. I think one of the things that the closure community has that is actually an asset in a lot of ways is that we have a significant portion of people who love the language, who have devoted enough time to learn it, you know, on their own to a pretty reasonable level of uh, proficiency, but who don't actually get to do it every day. And so I want to see at least one um, sort of hookup, if you will, where (laughs) where we get somebody who's like, I want to do closure stuff or and we put them with somebody in the uh, the academy who has need of a set of of willing hands and and make something happen with that. I just have this vision. Like there's so many times where I think where, you know, there's people in doing research or um, doing science and not necessarily computer science, but it's like if you had if that person had somebody who just had the the knowledge of how to make computers do things, 
that it would be like a force multiplier for them, like a superpower for them that they could get more done and that would be good for the world. So I would love to see that. I mean, it's great to mix. I would love to see that specifically come out of that at least one time. It would be super cool in my opinion. I totally agree. You know, one one thing we've looked at is that there's the Google Summer of Code and a number of people who participate in that are undergraduates, right? So, you know, that, for example, would be a great opportunity for early collaboration between the closures in industry and people in academia, because that, you know, that would be a great source of of papers for the scheme workshop, for example, right? So you'd have, uh, you know, maybe undergraduates using Clojure for some of their projects, and they could interact with with uh, experts, uh, expert programmers in industry, and also, you know, learn how to write a scientific paper and submit that. You know, so so those sorts of connections and kind of pushing things a little bit further are, are things I'd like to see. Another thing I'd like to see is. Well, I guess what I call closures meet schemers. You know, so so closure and scheme have very different macro systems. For example, uh, scheme has built-in support for uh, first-class continuations through call CC. Um, you know, there, there are a bunch of things that are different between the languages, and I would really like to. And part of the the difficulty I think is that there aren't that many people who really have expert knowledge in both languages. So with the macros, for example, right? You know, I know people who really are world-class experts in scheme macros, and I know people in the closure world who've done very, very hairy macro programming. But I don't know if I know anyone who really has very in-depth knowledge of scheme macros and has really in-depth knowledge of of closure macros. So it'd be very interesting to to get someone who's really a an expert hacker in closure macros and get someone who's an expert hacker in scheme macros and and have them give a joint presentation where they sort of compare and contrast the different macro systems and try to make understandable to people using the other language what the macro system in the other language gives you and what the trade-offs are and and how you use it you know how how those design decisions affect how you would write macros in those languages mm-hmm. you know, so, so those are sorts of things i would love to see and you know either in unsessions at the conj or online and some Google Hangouts or whatever. So that's, you know, that would be another thing that I think would be really fun and where people would get to learn not just something about another language, but by contrasting their language with another language, you always learn more about, you know, how your language really works, right? Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that I came to Clojure was uh, (laughs) I had learned common list, but I knew a bit of scheme because we did it in school and I, you know, was kind of aware of it. Certainly can't claim that level of expertise you're talking about around like the macro system. But I, as a C-sharp programmer at the time, I was seeing all sorts of stuff that was coming in C-sharp because I was kind of at the forefront of that, applying it to, you know, commercial problems. And then as I was learning more common lisp, I was seeing how those features had already been in common lisp for a long time. And so, you know, that kind of was how I got turned on to the fact that you know, other languages are a rich source of inspiration and knowledge and, and cool. I mean, Ambrose, you mentioned Ambrose. He said himself, oh, yeah, the type closure thing, which is a really cool project. I think he put it rather humbly as I basically lifted this straight from typed racket. I mean, obviously, there was a lot of work in there. But I mean, there's so much stuff. And I think languages like racket and like scheme that have been around for a long time and are still being used um, and are, you know, have these advanced features, and you know, that are lisps because, hey, 
closures of LISP2 are going to be just super rich sources of information, just if you want to look at it selfishly as I want to get better at closure. Exactly. And, and also, in, interesting things happen when ideas are transplanted between languages. You know, so David Nolan you know, started with my dissertation and, and ported code from my dissertation to CoreLogic, but in the process, you know, David's a great hacker, and he also wants to make a bulletproof system that runs really fast and that's written in a, a closure-friendly way and you know, takes advantages of things like sequences and things like that. So you know, the end result, the core logic, even though it's inspired by and to some extent based on Minikanran, it, it re really looks like a different system at this point. It has a lot of things that Minikanran doesn't have. You know, so uh, so this, at this point, Minikanran is looking at, you know, we're, we're looking at some of the things in core logic and saying, okay, well, is there anything we can kind of backport you know, from from the closure version, uh, I've already played around with that a little bit. So, you know, I, I think it just it gives you a different perspective on on ideas and and systems. You know, to see to see the same ideas implemented in different languages and and uh, you know, so scheme isn't uh, so scheme is very nice and it's very minimal language. It's it's easy to boil down whatever you're doing to a few core ideas, but at the same time, you know. Scheme doesn't have a lot of libraries. It doesn't have many data structures built in by default. It doesn't necessarily have the greatest support for generic programming. I mean, you can add all these things because it's a very powerful macro system and things like that. But you know, it takes some some work, and that wasn't an area we really explored in in Mini Canron initially. So to see the things that David has done has been really inspiring. And he he has a really nice uh, constraint solver with. Like uh, constraint logic programming over finite domains, and you know he likes to give demos showing solving Sudoku very fast, that kind of thing, right? So it's I don't know. Those are sort of collaborations that I find really fun and exciting. So along those lines, um, you know, along the lines of learning from each other, I, I wonder uh, <laughs> if I could bother you to make me a little bit smarter about the Scheme macro system. I mean, it is obviously one of the big differences between the two languages is their approach to macros. And as somebody who, yourself who's at least somewhat familiar with uh, the way closure macros work and, and definitely familiar with the way Scheme macros do, could you explain to me, like, the differences, like compare and contrast, as you were saying a little bit, uh, between the two uh, languages. Okay, so I, I could say a few words about this. I'm I'm a little nervous about getting into too many details because I'm afraid I'm going to get things wrong. Sure. And and I think you know this is why you know I would like to see a real closure macro expert and a real scheme macro experts you know kind of give a joint talk well, because I think I would learn a lot. But I can I can give you just a couple. You know, a top level. You, you don't have to make it a comparison, by the way. If you just okay. tell me how the scheme stuff works, that's fine. I don't, you know, I didn't mean to, to call you out. No, there. no, no, sure, <laughs> sure. So, so the the main thing about the scheme macro system that I, I think is interesting is that the scheme macro system has built-in support for hygiene, and by hygiene we mean making sure that the variable names that are introduced by the macros aren't going to accidentally shadow or capture identifiers that existed when you called the macro. Uh, so in Lisps, uh, in, in common Lisp, when you write a macro, you often have to use GenSim to generate a unique symbol to make sure that uh, whenever you introduce a new identifier in your macro that you're not accidentally picking a name like, you know, 
add one or whatever it is that might be used in the rest of the system. And it turns out that this doing this correctly in scheme, because scheme scheme makes different design decisions than either closure or common lisp, and in some ways is more flexible in terms of what you're allowed to rename and what you're allowed to override and shadow and the way the namespaces works is different in scheme. So because of those choices, this hygiene problem is probably a bigger issue for scheme than it is for for closure, for example. Mm. That's where it's, I, I, I start to, to tread a little bit on thin ice, but that, okay. that's that's kind of my current understanding is that that these hygiene decisions also are tied up into other language decisions like how many namespaces you have. Do you have separate namespaces for functions and things like that, like sure. you do in Common Lisp? So in Scheme, you know, my friend Aziz uh, likes to say that Scheme is the language of least restriction. You can override anything in Scheme, almost. You can redefine things. You can uh, redefine all the syntax. You don't have the closure notion of having the identifiers know which module they came from in quite the same way. So when you write the macros, you have to be very, very careful as far as the identifier names and things like that. So one of the big breakthroughs with the scheme macro system, which actually came out at Indiana University, was to have this automatic hygiene system where all of the introduced identifiers are automatically given special names or new names. So this system is very elegant. It turns out, I think it it arguably is much more complicated for someone who's just starting to learn how to use the macro system versus you know, the closure macro system or the common list macro system because you have to understand the hygiene, how the hell that works. So it does seem like, I, I think the scheme community has done not the best job in terms of ex- explaining this model in terms of the hygiene, but if you're writing a, if you're creating a language like Scheme that's as flexible as Scheme, unless you redefine as many things as Scheme and and works with uh, the equivalent of namespaces in the way Scheme does, you really don't want to be relying on GenSim. And it turns out there that there are some hygiene-related issues that you can't solve with GenSim in Scheme. So you can't you can't just use generated symbols to solve all your hygiene problems in Scheme. So anyway, so hygiene, this notion of making sure that the ver- the names that get introduced in your macros aren't going to capture other identifiers in your in your uh, program, that turns out to be sort of at the heart of the scheme macro systems currently. And there's been very interesting recent work to try to formalize mathematically how these systems work. So I, I have high hopes that in the very near future, we'll have a very clean and elegant way of explaining how all the scheme macro systems work and that that will make it easier to explain um, what's going on to other people. So just like there's Lambda calculus uh, is is the theoretical foundation for Lisps, there's something called nominal logic, which is the theoretical foundation for uh, hygiene. And, and there's been some work on that recently that's, uh, that's very interesting. So David Herman's uh, dissertation, for example, has, has lots of information on that. So anyway, uh, that's, it's hard to give a very good sense of this without getting into the details. Uh, all I can say is that the notion of making sure that the identifiers you introduce aren't uh, don't accidentally capture or shadow or override 
the existing identifiers in your program. That's really at the heart of, of scheme macros, much more so than in Clojure and definitely much more so than in Common Lisp. And everything is done automatically. There are at least two main macro systems in Scheme. One is a, a rewriting system called Syntax Rules, which uh, basically a pattern matching type thing, so, sort of like core match, if you're familiar with that, in Clojure, where you're matching against syntax and then you're rewriting syntax. So it's sort of a Sorry. term rewriting system. When you say syntax, <clears throat> you mean what we would so, think. So, what, what, uh, so if you saw a call to a macro, right, like a call to or, which in Scheme is, is a macro, mm -hmm. and you saw or and then a, a few other expressions in argument position to the or, then what Scheme would do is check to see, first of all, what's, what's in the first position of the application? It's or. Is or the name of a macro? Yes, it is. Therefore, we're going to use the macro evaluation rules instead of just treating it as a procedure application. And, and the way that Scheme is going to do that is it's going to try pattern matching against the call to or. Now, or can take any number of arguments, but there are other forms of syntax like let that you know, are going to, going to require certain syntax or they won't match. And, and then you'll get a syntax error. Uh, so, so syntax rules is very easy to define let in terms of lambda and procedure application, for example. It's, you know, basically a one-liner or a couple lines if, depending on how you do it. But it's, it's a very, very short macro to define let. And it, that, that can be written just as pure pattern matching form where you pattern match against the, the call to the macro, and then you just rewrite it, you know, or you remit, rewrite the let expression in terms of lambda and application. Mm. That's syntax rules. So that's that's a relatively simple uh, pattern matching based, you can think of it as a term rewriting system where you take some term in your program and rewrite it to another term. And once again, where it becomes interesting is dealing with the hygiene automatically to avoid variable capture and those sorts of problems. There's another system called syntax case, which is a procedural macro system, and it's more powerful. You can actually define syntax rules in terms of syntax case, and that gives you the full power of scheme. So in addition to having a pattern matcher, you can also, instead of just rewriting from one expression to another, you can call eval, you can load a file, you can do anything you want in scheme at macro expansion time and generate code based on that. So it's extremely powerful system. Uh, once again, the hygiene uh, comes into play there. And then there's been a lot of work at Northeastern University on trying to make syntax case easier to use. So Ryan Culpepper, for example, has worked on a system called syntax parse, which makes it easier to write error messages that are meaningful mm. in your macro system, for example, and it has some other nice features. So so people have been figuring out how to take these very powerful macro systems and, and make them easier to use. And I think there has been some progress on making it easier to understand. It does seem to me that it, most of the people I know who seem to really understand the scheme macro systems are you know, graduate students or advanced undergraduates at Indiana or Northeastern or Utah or places that have very strong scheme communities. And it seems hard for someone who's not in academia to really learn these macro systems effectively. So that's, I think, I think we could do a, a better job at, at trying to explain to people how, how the macro systems work and, and uh, how to use them effectively in Scheme. And part of the trickiness, I think, is I think our models of explaining the hygiene are very operational, where we describe 
you know, how, how the macro expander works rather than having maybe a higher level, more theoretical uh, model for explaining it. So that's why I'm hoping that this work on nominal logic will, will make that a little easier to, to explain. And we'll have a, a nicer, cleaner foundational approach to explaining macros. So uh, the, the other issue I think with macros that makes it tricky is that there are lots of macro systems. You know, there've been lots of schemes that have macro systems. There's Dylan, which was a, a Lisp that came out of Apple mm-hmm. that has a hygienic macro system that's similar to schemes, but not exactly the same. Scheme has actually had many macro systems that have been proposed or tried, implemented. Um, you know, there's Clojure as a macro system, and and hygiene is a concern in Clojure, and Clojure mm-hmm. tries to uh, tries to to uh, address that in a somewhat different way. Common Lisp as a macro system, and so so on and so forth. And now you're seeing things like JavaScript. People are playing with macro system for JavaScript or or for Rust and so forth. So it seems like there are lots of macro systems that either exist or being created uh, these days. And I think part of the problem is it's very difficult to look at different macro systems and understand what they're doing, especially when it comes to things like hygiene, because notions of hygiene are tied up into other design decisions of the language, like do you have separate namespaces for functions and things like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm also hoping that an improved theory of hygiene will allow us for the first time to to make fair comparisons between different macro systems that exist and, and try to to formalize this a little more so we can we can understand better what's going on. So you know with Lambda Calculus, you have languages like uh, Haskell and we can say, okay, well that's that's like a, a call by need lambda calculus and scheme is like a call by value lambda calculus. So there, there are theoretical models that are very simple that we can look at to try to understand sort of what's going on without getting into all the details of the language. And I'm hoping a similar thing will happen with macros. But right now it seems to me that it's actually very diff- difficult for people to pick up a bunch of different macro systems and fairly compare them without having very detailed knowledge of the underlying languages and the design decisions of those languages. Wow. <laughs> that makes yeah. that actually makes sense to me. No, I mean I I don't, you know, I don't pretend to have the the theoretical knowledge of of any of that stuff, but I I totally see why you would want it. I mean, it, you know, you mentioned for example, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you mentioned error messages. I was working with a library actually just before we were um just before we started recording, uh, it's a it's a closure library and it makes heavy use of macros. And I had a, there was a problem and the compiler message, the error message that I got out of it was not useful. And I could imagine, you know, maybe I'm stretching here, but I could imagine that a better basis for that stuff would be, you know, somewhere far down the road could be the result that it's easier for people to write sophisticated macro-driven libraries, but ones that produce more useful error messages. That's right, because one problem you have with macros, and you're just even going back to that simple example of the let macro that expands into Lambda and an application, you know, as soon as you take one form in language and you're expanding it to, to other forms, then the error message you are going to get if you don't do extra work is going to be for, from the forms that you've expanded to rather than the form that the user actually sees in their program. So that's that's one reason that syntax parse exists is to try to try to make it a little easier, less work for people to write good error messages. And and my understanding is that in real implementations of Scheme, you know, sort of something as simple as map, which is a function, not a, a macro, but in, in the definition of like map, map will be a very long definition because 
maybe for air, uh, efficiency and error checking reasons, but also to make sure you get the best error messages and things like that. Mm. So, so a lot of code and production is actually dealing with things like good error messages and error checking. So, you know, I, I think that's something that most macro systems could could benefit from. So, you know, I think if if you're interested in that topic, take a look at syntax parse, for example, in the racket world. I want to talk about let's let's take the jump sideways. That is really interesting and. Uh, I'd love to come back and talk about that more, but there's another thing that I want to mention, and I'll make sure we get to it since I'm sure I could continue to pick your brain on this stuff for quite a while. Um, you yourself are a, a podcaster, a social media engineer, if you will. You, you've, I know you've done some work with Hangouts, and you've got a, a show that you do. I, could you, let's, let's hear about that. I'd love to hear more about those. Sure. Uh, and before we leave the uh, topic oh, yeah, of, of the scheme workshop, yeah. I, I need to give one important super shout out to Lynn Grogan, oh, okay. who basically saved me last year uh, with all of her help organizing the scheme workshop. So a big thanks to Lynn. And I know Lynn did one of these podcasts, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, right after she had hiked uh, uh, the sea of uh, some trail through the Sierra Nevada. Uh, yeah, the... Oh my gosh, I'm spacing on the name. 212 <laughs> mile trail through California. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, so giant thank uh, thanks to Lynn. I uh, really I, that's the one shout out I can't miss. Yeah, Lynn is uh, awesome, and people can uh, when they should find her at the at the conj, or I'm sure she'll be hanging around beforehand and and yeah. say hi. She'd love to hear from you. So yeah, if you see Lynn, just like thank her because yep. She's being, you know, she's doing something to make the conch better or whatever. So. She and she help, she helps with every, pretty much every single episode of the show. So anyway, um, sorry, please okay. go ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, okay, so uh, yeah, so I've been experimenting with different types of, I, I guess largely with uh, YouTube videos and uh, Google Hangouts. Uh, once I discovered Google Hangouts, I thought, hey, this is really cool. So most recently, Steve Wolfman who is at University of British Columbia and I have been uh, doing some, some Google Hangout interviews uh, that we call the CS Education Zoo. So it's focused on computer science education. Uh, I want to make sure that it's not just talking about formal academic computer science education, but also just how do people learn about programming in general. Uh, we have four episodes so far. We've got a, a website, just Google for CS Education Zoo, you'll find us. Uh, but the uh, you know one one exciting thing is this Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern time we're going to interview uh, Cognitecker David Nolan. Oh, okay, cool. And uh, that's going to be fantastic. And you know I know David has lots of experience in uh, music and art and film and that sort of thing. So it'd be very interesting to to learn about his experience learning not just about programming about but about those sorts of things also. So, uh, so that's something I'm really fascinated is, uh, you know, about is uh, how do people learn programming and how can we make that better? And once again, you know, I guess because I was a hobbyist for so long and because I worked in industry for a long time, I maybe have a special place in my heart for people who are trying to learn academic programming language theory, for example, right? And, but don't, necessarily you know they haven't gone to grad school or haven't necessarily gone to to college or to to a school that had a great undergraduate program in pl so you know, anything we can do to try to make make these ideas more accessible to people who are working in industry or hobbyists is, is very important to me 
anyway, so so this show, the CS Education Zoo, is about how can we improve computer science and programming education? How can we make ideas more accessible? And basically, it's an interview format. We we find someone who we think has been doing very cool work in computer science education or teaching people how to program, and we interview them and just have them talk about you know the things that they've found that work. And David's been involved in lots of computer science education. I don't know how formal. I know he has taught some classes at uh, NYU, an interactive telecommunication program, and um, he's been involved in that. But also he's you know, been very involved in the Clojure community, has given lots of talks that are great. He's given a keynote at Strange Loop on basically how programmers should read more academic papers, that they'll learn from that. Uh, I thought that was a great talk. That was very inspiring. I also have seen him do all sorts of really cool work with Hacker School in New York and also with um, he, he runs his kitchen table coders thing in, in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, so small get togethers to talk about, talk about advanced programming. And so, so I, I just have tremendous respect for people who keep trying to push and keep trying to push themselves, you know, in, in terms of learning more and, and, go out of their way to try to share it with other people. So so uh, I guess Steve Wolfman and I just realized that we're both interested in computer science education and teaching people how to program and learning programming ourselves. And since we know so many people who are involved in this and we want to learn more, let's let's just talk to them and maybe other people will be interested in, interested in it. So, you know, let's record those and put them up on YouTube. The other thing is, you know, we, we have, uh, we invite people to join the show and, you know, be part of our peanut gallery, ask questions or whatever. So anyone who's interested, you know, feel free to to join the Google Hangout. Uh, I'll put the the link on our website and I'll I'll tweet about it. I'm Webbird W E B Y R D on Twitter. I always tweet about it bef- uh, beforehand and send out links. So anyone who wants to to join the Hangout and have questions for David or any other guests we have in the future, uh, please feel free to join us. That is super cool. Now, is it a uh, is it video or do you leverage video at all, or is it audio yeah. only? Or? Yeah, okay. so this is a this is a full Google Hangout. Uh, you know, we haven't haven't have haven't had a, people do any screen sharing or anything like that. But um, yeah, it's it's video and audio and turn. You know, what, one of the nice things about Google Hangout is, I guess, I get I get uh, lazy about it, but Google Hangout and Air automatically turns into a YouTube video, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I don't have to do a lot of post processing. So. Uh, yeah, so that that's one thing I've been playing around with with, uh, with Steve, and that's been a lot of fun. I've also made some tutorials on programming languages, things like continuations, continuation passing style, things like that. And I would like to get into making more of those. Uh, and you know, part of this, I, I know lots of people who are experts and know much more than I do about things like scheme macros or continuations and so forth. So I like to try to find ways to you know, get them to, to, to share some of their knowledge. And, you know, also, um, at one point in time, I tried to start making some videos on learning mini camera and logic programming, you know, for people who had no background at all. And I, I got a, maybe one or two videos in, I realized I was kind of biting off too much uh, without enough preparation. So right now I've been working with uh, a couple of really good undergraduates, Maria Jenkins and Celeste Hollenbeck. And, and we're working on, on this, like a self-study course. Uh, uh, hopefully they bring someone up from no knowledge of scheme or maybe even no knowledge of programming. That might be a bit of a stretch, but uh, certainly no knowledge of scheme or functional programming, bring them up so that they learn about scheme, that they learn about how to write a scheme interpreter, 
how to do program transformations, learn about logic programming, many can run relational programming, and get up to the point where they can do things like write a relational interpreter in many can run that runs backwards and, and get them up to the point where if they want to, they can understand sort of the cutting edge and in the research there and maybe even participate in it if they want to. So, um, you know, that's that's taking some time, but that's been lots of fun to work on. So, so anything like that we can share with people, I, I really enjoy. Yeah, that's awesome. Video is hard. I mean, you know, I, I have a ton of help with the show, which is the reason we're able to do as many episodes as we are. And uh, video is, cons- we had uh, Eric Normand on, he does the Lisp cast. And we were talking a bit about this, so I won't belabor the point, but you know, I mean, the, the ratio for the podcast is, I don't know, it's maybe 10, you know, five to 10 to one, right? In other words, five or 10 hours to produce a one hour show for the way that we do it. And I think video is significantly more than that, you know, 20 or more to one oftentimes. So uh, I think you were wise to get help. And that's super that's cool. right. Well, the other piece of technology we're trying to use is uh, not a men off some cool technology with uh, an interactive web server, basically, where you can and there, there's other sites that that have this now, but you can execute some scheme code, let's say, or some mini canon code on, on the server uh, or write some code or modify some code. And I think a combination of that and videos could be very effective in letting people play around with examples and and, uh, do exercises and things like that. So I'm just very interested in how can we take advantage of some of this newer technology, right? That, you know, it's not, everything doesn't have to be based on a traditional classroom model anymore and probably probably shouldn't be, you know, I mean, it's one model, but uh, with new technology and new medium, we we should be pushing things a little bit more. Um, so that's something that also fascinates me. I, I have a question for you. I've, I've been wondering about this a lot. I mean, I have two kids and one of them, the older one says she wants to be a programmer. I mean, she's almost 10, so who knows if she'll maintain that. But um, it makes me wonder about things like, you know, what's a good first programming language? And that's not my, my question for you. But my question for you has to do around if you have someone who is new to programming. I, I have this completely unjustified by any fact feeling that there is an enormous benefit in taking people down a road that many practitioners might consider advanced. So for example, Mini, Mini Canron. I mean, I, I read The Reason Schemer and I, um, I learned a lot, but it's definitely one of those books where I feel like to really get everything out of it that I could, I would have to go back and, re- and read it at least one more time and probably more. Um, and so, you know, when you talk about taking people into programming, maybe down that road, on the one hand, it seems very uh, daunting, like a big hill to climb. But on the other hand, I'm reminded of the time my friends took me skiing and, you know, and they're like, oh, come on, let's go over here. And I'm like, what does double black diamond mean? Right. And I like went down this cliff and, you know, fell about 100 times. But by the time I got to the bottom, while I wasn't ready for the Olympics, I was ready to keep up with them to the extent that they weren't like super bored waiting for me anymore. So I kind of feel like there's a, a sense in which, uh, and baptism by fire is probably the wrong analogy, but there's a sense in which how you start actually has a lot to do with how you go on. And I wonder if you had any thoughts about that. That's a great question. It's something I've thought about, and I I don't have any great answers. I can tell you that people ask me on a fairly regular basis, or I, I meet someone who's interested in learning about programming, and sometimes, you know, maybe it's someone in middle school. Sometimes it's it's one of my friends who 
maybe works at a coffee shop and just is curious about it or whatever, right? And, you know, the beginning is like a very delicate time. You know, if they get turned off, then they, they may not come back to it. So so it, it seems very tricky. And, you know, for, for someone who's college age and who wants to become a programmer, you know, wants to do this a major, there are lots of resources online, that sort of thing, lots of books and so forth. But I think it's a lot trickier for, for people who are younger or for uh, maybe people who are coming at it, you know, they're, they're not going to be taking courses on it necessarily. You know, they just want to kind of dip their toes in it. So one one thing that I found recently that I think is interesting is a website on game programming in Python mm-hmm. that's designed for two uh, for ten to twelve year olds, and that's something actually I'm going through right now uh, to to try being to, ten to twelve. <laughs> being ten to twelve, you know, I, I started reading this book. It's like, wow, well, okay, this seems seems pretty good. Uh, maybe it's a little easy, but it but it seems pretty good. And then I read it's like for ten to twelve year olds, and you know, part of, <laughs> part of me feels like embarrassed. You know, I got a PhD in programming languages and all this stuff, but but I think I shouldn't feel embarrassed. I should. I think it's fine. I like playing games and I like programming games. So, you know, that's a good way to learn Python. And what I like about this approach so far, I haven't gotten all the way through it, but is it, you know, it teaches you just enough Python to make a little game. And then it teaches you just enough more Python to make the next more complicated game and things like that. So, so this website, and it's, it's a, it's all released under creative commons and, there's code available for it. It's all in Python three, but I thought that was that looked like a pretty nice introduction, you know, for someone who's who's just getting into programming. Be them, you know, they could be ten or twelve year olds, or they could be older and they just want to learn Python or they just want to learn some programming. It seems like, you know, it doesn't take a lot to to get started with these games. Um, so so I can give you a link to that. I think that's. Right now, that's kind of my go-to source. I'm trying to go through it myself and and teach uh, teach a friend of mine. Uh, I'd like to get up to the point where we could do like a chess game or something like that in in Python. So I don't know something that's you know Michael Jordan said that parents would ask him you know how do I get my kid to to be uh, become a great basketball player or whatever and his response was to let them play you know that. To just let them have fun with it and explore it and, and do things that they find very interesting and motivating and that they will learn more. You know, that, that, that once they get the love of it, they'll they'll want to learn more. And and I, I felt that myself for learning programming that and when I teach programming to people, I I tend to err on that side that, you know, maybe I'm a little less formal than than I could be, right? And maybe I don't emphasize as much with proofs of correctness and things like that. But I, but I do try to make sure that everyone's having fun because I, I figure that if, if people really do know, learn, really do learn how to program and they feel that sense of being able to do interesting things like maybe program an Arduino and things like that, that they'll, they'll want to go on and learn other things. So, you know, the, the my responsibility when trying to teach someone really is to get them to the point where they have enjoyment. You know, I, I've tried to learn guitar several times. I've failed every, every time. And part of it is, you know, there, there's some hurdle where you have to get used, you know, you have to build up the calluses on your fingers, right? So it stops hurting as much. And you have to get to know the finger positions. And, you know, it's in the beginning, it, it takes some time before you get to the point where you're making something that sounds good. At least that's mm-hmm. my experience, right? Yeah. And I, I've always quit, like, before I got over that hurdle, right? And, and I think... There's, there's probably an analogy there to programming that, you know, it, 
there has to be something that that hooks people enough that they're going to want to uh, to learn more. So that that's that's my perspective. Now, some people obviously, you know, they they're just like driven to learn, and you know, that, that I think they'll learn on their own. But you know, I, I think something related to games is is good because games are both very interesting from a technical standpoint and fun to play and fun to make. Um, you know, I remember writing a chess program a long time ago and it, and it beat my brother and I kind of felt bad because I knew how bad the program was. You know? <laughs> but it was really fascinating learning about that. Or, you know, you can write a tic-tac-toe program. I, I mm-hmm. spent a weekend writing a tic-tac-toe program at Mini Canron a couple of weekends oh, yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. It was really, really slow, but uh, it was very interesting to see how I could write tic-tac-toe in a, this, this purely declarative way. And, you know, it's uh, so so puzzles and games, that sort of thing, I think is really cool. Um, so that that's kind of my go to thing. Another thing that I'm interested in, like to learn more about is uh, computer connections to music and and to art. You know, like Sam Aaron, obviously, has been doing great work in this area, uh, trying to to get people involved in, in computing through uh, music. So so that's something I wish I knew more about. But uh, but for me, it's games. I love playing games. So so games and- program. Great. Have you seen uh, Conrad Barsky's book? I, I have. So there's Land of Lisp and then Realm of Racket, right? Uh, yeah, I was thinking of the Land of Lisp one, but yeah, you're right, uh, Realm of Racket as well. Yeah, so so uh, I, I haven't gone through all of Land of Lisp, but uh, the, the parts I, I read in the beginning seemed really interesting. I liked that a lot. So, you know, so, so I, I when I was a kid growing up, you know, I, I, my brother and I would go down to the, the – uh, you know, we go down to the corner general store and buy Computes Magazine that had basic programs to type them in in our trash. Oh, yeah. I did that same thing. Yep. You know, and, and uh, uh, there were a bunch of books on game programming for kids and basic and stuff like that. And and I always found that really interesting. You know, you, you don't need a, too much of a game to be fascinating. And, and I, fa- I found this teaching undergrads. You know, we could do like a little Simon style game. And, you know, for me, a lot of the fun came once we started dealing with our Arduino and microcontrollers and could control the physical world. And then we could actually make LEDs light up and have physical buttons. And, and uh, you know, it was very interesting watching the students understand how you could have a little pocket game like lights out or simon or something like like that how it actually would work physically and how it how it would interact with the programming you know they were just fascinated by that and you know these are very simple games and very simple electronics but um you know a game like simon or a game like uh, whack-a-mole we would do Mm whack-a-mole whack-a-mole you could make a million variants of whack-a-mole and so we'd show them how to do whack-a-mole and how to make one or two um, you know, variations, and then they would go to town and, you know, come up with dozens of versions of whack-a-mole. And, you know, it was relatively simple programming and relatively simple electronics, but it was kind of like the gateway drug, right? Like, you know, once they saw that they could do that sort of thing, then their mind would start, you know, racing. It's like, okay, what else can I do? So so something like that, you know, something with Arduino and interacting with the physical world, I think, is is also very interesting. And that's something that you couldn't really do until, you know, within the last 10 years or so, you know, it's true. The microcontrollers were just too hard to program and stuff like that. And now we got the whole maker movement and make magazine and, you know, all of these make mention type things and stuff like that. So I think it's just a lot easier to get into microcontrollers, electronics, uh, that kind of thing. And, and that's also a very interesting way in the raspberry Pis and stuff like that. That's, that's also an interesting way to get into programming and interacting with the physical world, which I think is really fascinating. 
Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, no, I I have to do a lot of thinking. I, this has been great, actually. I think the thing, the bit that you just flipped for me was as my uh, daughter gets older and I'm getting close to the point where, you know, I might be able to teach her program. Because to this point, it's basically been here's a computer, interact with it, have have fun just interacting with it. I don't really want to sit down and say, now we're going to learn, you know, whatever. But but I think what you just said is that to me, to me at least, my takeaway is. Maybe it's more important to think about the experience than it is necessarily about the technology. And, and, and games, of course, are a very clear way towards giving people an experience of programming rather than putting the, the thing that the, the syntax or whatever concrete thing at the center of the learning experience, especially for the young, perhaps. That's right. And, and you know, even, even for this course that we're trying to design on getting people up to writing mini Canon interpreters, you know, I have to keep coming, going back and thinking, well, you know, do we really have to show them all that scheme before we have them write an interesting program? You know, can, can we can we kind of get them into the programming first and then you know, teach them more of the scheme as sort of call, you know, as as needed, you know, just in time. And as, as I learn more and more about that and I and also there's this, you know, this whole constructivist approach to, to learning that, you know, Alan Kay, for example, has advocated for for decades of, you know, sort of a Montessori uh, method where you know people gravitate to the things they're interested in, but also people learn by building things, right? And, and mm. as programmers, we learn by building programs and building systems and so forth. And you know, I, I think that's that's very similar when you're learning to begin programming as as well, right? It's all about you know what sort of things can you build? You know, what, uh, start building things quickly, and you know they don't have to be super complicated. You know, like just showing people how. Uh, the animal game, that's sort of the 20 questions game, is it bigger than a bread box and that sort of thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that that little silly, stupid game, which has like decision trees and things like that inside of it, that game was so motivating to the students I taught. It's like, wow, you know, if they, they get into this. But, you know, I think the thing that was fun to them is that, first of all, they could, for the first time, they could really understand how something like that worked. They could see it's actually very simple, and then also they could see how they could change it and modify it and start experimenting with it, right? So that's you know that's the way I learned how to program is, you know, find a good example that's understandable and start modifying it. So that I think that approach is great, and someone doesn't have to know that much programming to to be able to to understand a, a, a simple game and to start playing around with it. But I do see that we are coming up on an hour of conversation, and the fact that I am reluctant to draw it down means that we're definitely going to have to have you back on, because clearly there's more things we could talk about. However, before we do, I want to make sure that we take as much time as is needed to talk about anything else you'd like to uh, discuss today. I want to leave anything out that you want to that you want to bring up today. Okay, well, thanks. So a couple things. First of all, one of my friends at Utah, uh, Michael Ballantyne, has pointed me to something called Tiddly Wiki. I don't know if you've heard of this, but... Uh, it sounds vaguely familiar. Go ahead and explain what it is. It's a research... Oh, sorry. That's what my title of it is. It's basically a super lightweight wiki for personal notes and, and writing and jotting things down. Right. Um, and it's open source. And, but you can, you, can exp, you, know, you can use it through Node.js or a bunch of other, other approaches. But I've just been using it for, for about a, five days now, and, and I love it. Because uh, I, I used to have, uh, you know, I, I've got literally hundreds of notebooks, research notebooks full of ideas or project notebooks, right? And, you know, I write everything down or I'll try to do it in the Emacs buffer or try adding comments to GitHub or whatever it is. But 
you know, I got notes spread all through Google Drive and all over the place, right? I, I can't find anything. Um, so the, this it's just a super, super lightweight wiki. There's there's almost no overhead in terms of having an idea versus writing it down or, ha, you know, going back and revisiting a note. It's easy to search. It has a very nice tagging mechanism. So uh, I just wanted to share that with people because I, I, I found that to be really handy in organizing my notes. And you, know, you know, I have actually seen that. In fact, I used it for a while. God, it must have been uh, five or maybe even 10 years ago. So it's been around for quite a while. And oh, I wow. really actually do like the wiki concept. I've, ac I've, I've actually implemented a pretty significant uh, wiki that has unfortunately since become defunct for social reasons. But um, yeah, no, I think it's, it's a super cool idea. I really, really like the idea of, of wiki as a capture device. I think there's a ton of power in that idea. Yeah. And I particularly like the search aspect of it because, you know, I, I've got all of these ideas that I've been working on for some of them for a decade or more, but you know, it's like uh, in a notebook in storage in Indiana or something. That's not very helpful. Right? <laughs> right. So, so this, I, I know, it's, it's just so lightweight. And it's like, I think the fifth version of the, the wiki that they've they've just redesigned and they're improving it each time. So anyway, that, that uh, I just, I had never heard of it before and it's just a lot of fun. So it might be something that people want to want to try out and play with. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I just find them writing more. I guess that's one of the things. Okay. Like I, I always feel like I should be writing more and, and it's encouraged me to write more. So that's, that's one thing that uh, I just wanted to share with people. Cool. Let's see. Another thing, I, I've been thinking about communities uh, and communities for bringing together industry and uh, academic and hobbyist programmers and that sort of thing, and, and trying to think about you know what sort what sort of communities do we have online, and you know where are they strong and where are they maybe not so strong. And most recently, I've been thinking about community building for student undergrads maybe who want to go to grad school or interested in grad school um, and grad students and postdocs those sorts of things you know with what would what would be useful resources for them online that kind of thing uh, but I'm, I'm trying to think about ways to to connect people and, and in particular I'm really interested in mentorship uh, you know or apprenticeship and I think there's some opportunities online for that that uh, things like Google hangout or you know, the, the, the technology now exists with screen sharing, things like that, for more experienced programmers in academia or industry to to do some mentoring, you know, kind, kind of a form of outreach with, with people who are just learning to program in a, in a certain language. Like, you know, I'd be happy to, to mentor people who are trying to learn Scheme or want to learn more advanced topics. And, you know, the, that sort of one-to-one -one model where you're mentoring someone over some time, I think would be very interesting to explore. I don't know of any real resources for that online. So that's that's something I'm thinking about. So if you know, anyone sees me at ClojureCons or whatever or wants to drop me a line about ideas for that, I'd be very interested in that. Awesome. And then last uh, few things, you know, I give a shout out to uh, Matt Might, who's uh, the professor I work for at uh, University of Utah. He's been a friend of mine from for many years since he was in grad school and I was in grad school and it's been a lot of fun to work with. And uh, let's see, one more thing um, just mentioned is the, I like trying different experiments, um, social experiments, educational experiments, things like that. One experiment I'm trying right now is, you know, it seems like there's just not, not much support for artists in the United States right now. And the, there's an artist I really like, Trista Mus Musco, who's now in New Orleans. And uh, I've enjoyed her artwork just online for a long time. And 
being an artist, uh, you know, he's not been able to to afford to do that full time. And um, so recently, I've been trying, you know, to to experiment with sort of like a micro or mini patronage type thing, where I've been just trying to to um, to help support her a little bit with her artistic uh, endeavors. And so that, that's been fun to play with. And then once again, trying to figure out like, you know, is this, is this something that could be scaled up somehow? I'm not sure. But H- have uh, you seen uh, Patreon.com? I, I have seen Patreon. So, you know, so, so this is obviously a little different from Patreon. Okay. You know, in Patreon for people who haven't seen that, you know, you'd have an artist or, or a podcaster or whoever who, uh, who basically gets pledges from, from patrons mm-hmm. For, for producing a piece of art or making a, a video or whatever and every time that they they make something you know they would they would get a certain amount of, of money to help support their efforts and and I think that's a that's an interesting model there there are a number of these models are coming online and, and maybe maybe that will be be a way to to help uh, sustain these uh, artists and people doing creative things uh, there's also things like Kickstarter obviously. So I'm playing around with something a little different. You know, uh, one of the things I'm interested in is sort of personal longer term investment in, mm-hmm. in someone. And, you know, this is something I've, I've had great pleasure with as, as a um, as a teacher, you know, I was at Indiana for for about 10 years. You know, I got to interact with lots of students and work with them for a long period of time and um, see students go through undergrad and through grad school and things like that. So. Uh, I, I've I've really had fun, um, you know, working with students and doing research with them after teaching them and things like that over a long period of time, like many years, right, and getting to know them really well. So, so anyway, I'm just trying to think, you know, is is there is there something like that that I could do with you know to to support a single artist? So so anyway, so Trista is the artist that I'm I'm trying to to work with and you know trying to work with her for for five years ideally. Um, and uh, so she goes by QTR Nevermore, like quote the way quote the Raven Nevermore okay. uh, online. So uh, if people want to check out her art, uh, that's really cool. But um, anyway, that's just something that uh, I thought I'd mention that you know once again like another experiment uh, to try to um, I don't know see see if new technology. I mean, she's someone who just learned about from Twitter and online, right? So it's just we're living in a very interesting time where. You can meet people that you would never have met before. You can interact with people. You can learn from people. You can teach people in ways that uh, just couldn't have been done even, you know, five or ten years ago. So uh, I'm just fascinated by those those possibilities. And um, you know, one one perfect example is, uh, you know, Dan Friedman and I work on books and papers and things like that. You know, we've we've recently started experimenting with things like doing. Google Hangouts with uh, screen share, or so yeah, screen sharing, to to do our research. You know, he's in Indiana and I'm in I'm in Utah, and that's worked extremely well. And in fact, now when we work on when I'm working with Celeste and Maria on this online course, we've actually found you know at, at their request. But I was thinking about this beforehand. We used to get together in a coffee shop and do work, and now we actually just we're each at home or they're on campus or I'm on campus or whatever. And we just record everything online and do screen sharing. And it's actually easier for us to work this way than it is for us to sit down next to each other in person. Mm-hmm. And that, that just kind of blew my mind. It's actually easier <laughs> now for me. And, and I'm working right now, I'm working with folks in Russia doing research and stuff like that who I've never met in person. You know, it's like, it's easier for me to do research with someone 
in Russia right now than it is for me to do, do work with someone sitting next to me. And, and, and that, that's just a, such a bizarre concept. You know, I just find that really fascinating. And, and I think we're, we're only beginning to understand what the possibilities are. So I always have my eye out for that sort of thing. Well, that is a whole lot of really cool stuff, and we will certainly put links to um, everything you've mentioned in the in the show notes. People can find those the usual place, cognitech.com slash podcast. <laughs> I, I, you know, that is great, and that seems like the perfect place to close it down. I think you said that was everything you wanted to mention, so uh, I will, uh, I will, I will just thank you. So, uh, you know what I'll do before I, I will thank you certainly, but I, before I completely wind down, I will, I will ask you the one. Uh, final question I have for you, which is uh, the music on the way out. We play a song, you pick it. What would you like us to close the show with? Don't You Ever by Spoon. And okay. So people should listen to the song because it's a great song. But afterwards, they should go and watch the video made by Wired, which uh, released under Creative Commons, which is Keep On Dancing to Spoons, Don't You Ever. And it's the Keep On Robot, the beat bot, the dancing robot, dancing to Spoons, Don't You Ever. It's a great, great video. Cool. I love it. Well, we'll certainly put a link in into that as well so people can find that quite easily. Well, Will, thank you a ton for coming on and for such a fascinating conversation. Really, really thought-provoking for me. Um, I just really, really enjoyed it. And I, I was dead serious about um, wanting to have you back on at some point. I'm sure that, you know, we'll be able to, like you say, you're always looking for experiments and um, whether it's one of those or one of the many other things you're working on, I'm sure that we would uh, have another equally fascinating conversation uh, if you were to come on again. So thanks. Thanks a ton for coming on. Thank you, Craig. This is great. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So we will close there. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been the Cognicast. Single sleeps alone, you have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Will Bird on Twitter at WEBird, W-E-B-Y-R-D. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Damian Mack, Jamie Kite, Lynn Grogan, Michael Fogus, Paul DeGrandis, Sam Umbach, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. Our producer is Kim Foster. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Bet you never think it feels right.